Colossians chapter 4 is our passage. You can take your Bible and open to Colossians 4. We're going to look at verse 2 to verse 6. Next Sunday will be our final Sunday in the book of Colossians. It's a short letter, and we've come all the way now to the end. We'll look at next Sunday, verse 7, through the end of the letter. This morning, I want to start off with a brief comment about pronouns. Pronouns are a hot topic today, and so we'll start off with a quick word about pronouns. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul uses the pronoun us, first person plural pronoun, us. He's referring to a group of people that includes himself, Timothy, Epaphras, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Jesus, who was called Justice, Luke, the physician, and Demas. And I've given you the references for where all of these men are listed. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about some of those names and why they're included in this letter to the church in Colossae. I just want you to note that as Paul writes this letter, he's writing from prison. We'll circle back to that in a moment. But even in prison, he's the mastermind, if we could use that term, of a missionary operation that includes a number of different men and women, and several of them are listed in this book at the end of Colossians. The big picture takeaway of the, of the book is the same from beginning all the way through the end. We've talked about this week in and week out. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord is a driving dominant theme of this book. That's a churchy phrase, uh, something we would sing in a song. We would acknowledge, yes, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, but it really has a specific meaning in this book. When Paul talks about Jesus as Lord, he's saying that he's supreme. He is the head. He is the chief of redemption. He is the head. He is the chief of creation. He is the head. He is the chief of the church. Colossians 1.18, he's preeminent. In all things, he's the supreme one. He's the first place one. Jesus is Lord. And we mentioned this last week and the last several weeks. Very directly, what that means is Jesus has the right to tell you and me and everyone on the earth how to live our lives. That's sort of the emphasis in the last two chapters of Colossians. The first two chapters emphasize the idea that Jesus is the Lord. And then in chapter three, Paul begins to say, let me give you an example of what that means in your life. And so I've given you some of these verses. In verse one to four, what Paul says is, Jesus is Lord of your thought life, or he ought to be. He has the right to tell you what to think about. That's pretty big right. I don't have that right in your life, neither do you have it in mine, but Jesus has it in our lives, the right to tell us what we ought to think about. Verse five to verse 16, what we ought to do and not do with our actions, what we ought to put on, Christ-likeness, and what we ought to put off, sin. We looked at verse 17. You can see it in your Bible if it's open. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's just a blanket summary. Everything you do in life, Everything you do, whatever you do, you ought to do it for the name of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. We looked last week at verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus has the right to tell us how our relationships function in marriage, 
in parenting, in employer-employee situations. Jesus has the right to tell us how to live our lives. This morning, we're gonna continue that theme, and here's the big idea. It's a very simple thought. The Christian life involves prayer and witness. Jesus calls his people to be people who pray and people who witness. In this passage, there are two imperative words, two actual commands. There's an imperative in verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue. Continue what? Praying. How do you do it? Steadfastly. Continue in that. That's a command. Command number one. Jesus calls his people to be praying people. The second command is in verse five. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And we'll look at verse five and six in a moment. What he's calling us to is witness to be willing to open our mouths and to tell other people the good news about Jesus Christ. That's how we walk in wisdom towards outsiders. There's two pieces of the Christian life. It's not all that's involved in the Christian life, but it's two pieces of the Christian life. And I wanna make one small point before we move on. What we're talking about in this passage is Paul giving instructions, two commands, to Christian people. That means this sermon is primarily directed to those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you acknowledge him as Lord of your life. That's the primary audience of this sermon. Now, some of you in the room maybe have never trusted in Jesus and you do not acknowledge him as Lord of your life. Understand, these two commands are not a two-item bullet point list where if you do these two things listed in this passage, that God will then love you. These are two things that Christian people do because God has loved us. And he has sent the supreme one, his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven. That's Psalm 103. He does not chide forever. He does not treat us according to the way we deserve to be treated. But in his son, he is kind to us and he is merciful to us and he is gracious to us. And if you have never come to the point in your life where you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you say, I will now acknowledge that he is Lord of creation, of redemption, of the church, of my life, then that's my primary plea to you is that you get square on the question of who Jesus is, the Savior and the Lord. Now most of you, this is the 830 service, so this is the elite crowd. Most of you would say, I've done that. And so I would say, well this passage has instructions for you. Instructions about prayer and witness. Prayer and witness are really, really very simple things. In this passage, when we talk about gospel prayer and gospel witness, prayer is talking to God about people and witnessing, Christian witness, is talking to other people about God. So we're talking about talking this morning. Talking to God about other people, that's prayer. Talking to other people about God, that's witness. If you have your Bible open, let's read this passage. Colossians chapter four, beginning in verse two. 
continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we very simply, very humbly ask that you would take your word and that your spirit would press it into the hearts of your people and that we would see, we would have eyes to see what the Christian life involves in this call to prayer and this call to witness. Lord, we pray that you would be honored in our thinking as we walk through this passage. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Several months ago, Jake and I decided we wanted to go to a Dallas Mavericks basketball game. I don't know if you know this, but when Jake Graves grows up, he wants to be Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic, Jake loves Luka. He thinks he's the second coming of Dirk Nowitzki, and he has put all of his hopes in this life on Luka. Luka is the one who is going to lead the Mavs to a new, uh, another NBA title. Now, I like basketball. I don't have a favorite NBA team, and so uh, I just, if I'm honest with you, I root for whoever Jake's not rooting for, just to egg him on. So I just, we have a few bets going right now in the NBA world, and we decided we were going to go to a game. We were going to go to a Lakers game. The Lakers were going to play in Dallas, but the tickets were a little expensive for that game. So we settled for a game. This last Tuesday, we drove to Dallas, and we watched the Dallas Mavericks play the the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets. Now, I don't know if you watched the game. It was on TV. It was a great game for about three and a half quarters. And at the end of the game, Jake's hero missed a three-point shot that would have tied the game and sent it into overtime. And I looked over at Jake, and there may have been a little moisture coming out. It was terrible, terrible ending. But it was a really fun game. We had a good time. We had great seats. We sat on the platinum level, which means that you sit in the middle of the arena. You're not down low, but you're not up top, and they make you feel really good about being on the platinum level. So we sat on the platinum level. We sat on the front row of the middle section. We had a great time, except, except, there's always an except, the loudest, most obnoxious, most profane man in American Airlines Arena sat directly behind Jake Graves. He was drunk at tip-off. We could smell him as soon as he walked up. He not only was loud, and he was right behind us, but he had one of those voices. You know when you're in a restaurant and there's someone across the restaurant talking, and you just try to block it out, and you say, I'm just going to listen to my table. I'm not going to listen to that. And the harder you try, the more you hear the person across the restaurant. That was this guy. He was so loud. He was very obnoxious. And to make matters worse, the entire game, from beginning to the final missed shot, he mocked Jake's favorite player, Luca. It never stopped from the beginning of the game to the end of the game. It was merciless. And I sat there and I listened and I watched. 
And I was thinking to myself about the second quarter, about halftime, I started thinking, you know, Jake told me one time that in high school, his nickname was Mighty Mouse. Small, but strong. And this guy kept talking and he kept talking and he kept talking and I thought any moment, Mighty Mouse is about to break out. He's gonna turn around and he's gonna deck this guy right in the mouth. He was a big guy, so I was ready to help whatever I needed to do. I thought, this is gonna happen. You would be proud of Jake. He stayed calm, relatively cool, mostly collected. He did not respond in kind. Now, here's why I tell you that story. That two-hour experience that we had is an experience that many of you have had at a concert or at a game or at an event of some kind. You've been around in your life loud, obnoxious people. When I talk about loud, obnoxious people, some of you think about Thanksgiving just a few weeks ago. And you think, yep, I was around some of those people, Thanksgiving lunch. Some of you think about the office this last week and you say, yep, I work with some of those people. They are loud and they are obnoxious. Some of you are just completely drawing a blank. You can't think of any loud, obnoxious people and it's because we are thinking about you right now. You're the loud, obnoxious one, okay? Now, in small situations, we experience this in a macro level in our lives, As Christian people, in all seriousness, as Christian people, this passage is addressed to Christian people. As Christian people, we live our lives in this world rubbing shoulders with folks who don't share our faith, they don't share our values, they don't share our convictions, they don't share our beliefs, In the case of this man who sat behind Jake, they did not share a common vocabulary. And we have to be around these people, not just at basketball games, but at family dinners and at work during the week and with your neighbors and with the person that's sitting across from you at a restaurant. I mean, all the time, we live with non-Christian people in this world. If you wanna put it in Pauline terms, you could go back to Colossians chapter one and you could say we are people who have been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, but we live among people who still live in the domain of darkness. God in his grace and his mercy has moved us into the kingdom of his son, but day in and day out we rub shoulders with and we live among people who are still part of the domain of of darkness. The question is, at this point in Colossians, how do we do that? How do we live amongst people who don't share our faith or our values or our beliefs or our convictions or even our vocabulary? There's a lot of things that the Bible says about this. For example, Jesus calls his people to be salt and light. That helps us understand, how do I, as a citizen of Jesus's kingdom, live amongst people in this world who are still part of the domain of darkness. You ought to be salt and you ought to be light. This passage gives us another insight into that question. How do I live amongst people who are still part of the domain of darkness? Well, ought to be a praying person and ought to be a witnessing person. And so all I want us to do is walk through these two paragraphs, these two imperatives, and listen to what Paul has to say about these 
these commands. So we'll start with prayer. Christians are called to be praying people. We'll start with the idea that prayer is hard and it requires devotion. Prayer is hard. If you do it right, you do it well, you do it faithfully, it's hard. It's a spiritual discipline and it requires devotion. Verse two, continue. Notice the command is not actually to pray, but the command is to continue. Continue. How do I continue? Steadfastly in prayer. Some translations say be devoted to prayer. You've got to make a commitment to be a praying person. Look what he says at the end of verse two. He says be watchful in it. Be watchful in it. Some translations say be awake or wakeful. Be alert in your praying. It's because prayer is hard. You hear this call to continue steadfastly and to be watchful in our prayers. And my mind, the minds of many commentators, goes to Peter. Peter with the Lord Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. Right before Jesus' glory was revealed, what was Peter doing? He was sleeping. Sleeping. Jesus was praying. Peter was sleeping. Think about Peter. Not long after that moment, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He takes them further in the garden, and he says, I need you to watch, and I need you to pray need you to pray. What do they do? They sleep. They sleep. I don't just think about Peter, but I think about my own struggles with prayer. Likely, I think about your struggles with prayer. To be faithful and consistent and watchful and steadfast and devoted in prayer. It's not an easy thing to do. Many times, people come to me and they say, man, I my prayer life, I doze off, I go to sleep, I just say the same thing over and over and over again, I don't know what to say at all, and I just sort of nod in my head and say, yeah, me too. That's prayer, it's hard. You have to continue in it, you have to be steadfast in it. It's why Jesus told a parable, and you can read the parable on your own later, Luke chapter 18, verse one, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why would he tell a parable like that? Because he knows that when we pray, we are prone to lose heart. So he tells him this story in Luke 18 saying, you ought to always pray. You ought to be steadfast in it, and you ought not lose heart. Be devoted to prayer. He also says this in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. That's the second thing that you need to see this morning. Christians should be people who always give thanks, always give thanks. I think most American Christians, and I'll put myself in this category, when they think about prayer, it's the spiritual equivalent of a vending machine. I'm gonna put something in, and I'm gonna get something back. I'm gonna come to God and I'm gonna pray, and then he's gonna do what I ask. And what often happens, if you've ever used a vending machine, is you punch in the Snickers number, and the wheel turns, 
and the Snickers just stays right there. And then most of us, when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to, we look like the guy who's trying to get his Snickers out. Shaking the machine, banging on the front of it. He's sort of looking around thinking, how violent can I get with this machine? This was literally me last night. We went out to eat and my son wanted a gumball and we put the money in, the gumball machine, and the thing went around and the lights went off and the gumball stopped right up at the top. And I looked around and I thought, well, this is in my sermon tomorrow, so I guess I better get after it. And I just started shaking the machine. Nothing happened. It just stayed right there. And then all the lights turned off, and I thought, oh, I broke the machine. So I got another quarter out, put it in. That's how you approach a vending machine, and I think that's how most of us think about God when it comes to prayer. I'm going to put something in, and then God's going to do what I ask him to do. And when the gumball or the Snickers get stuck right there, we sort of get frustrated. We get discouraged. We lose heart. I think we need to remind ourselves that prayer is not primarily a transactional thing between us and God. Prayer is not a matter, first and foremost, of coming to God and giving the right input, saying the right formulaic things so that God is then beholden to us to do whatever it is we ask him to do. Prayer is not first and foremost about us talking God into seeing things our way or doing things our way. Prayer first and foremost, for the believer, is experiencing a relationship with God, talking to him, conversing with him, giving thanks, not just coming with requests, but being mindful enough and self-aware enough to say, God, you have done great things for me, and you've done great things for your people. And I may be in a situation now that I'm not particularly crazy about, but I'm still thankful for who you are and for what you've done in sending your son and for your provision and your faithfulness in my life. Christians are people who are called to give thanks. I would just reference quickly, note quickly that Paul has done this throughout the book of Colossians. Let's look at some of these quickly. Colossians chapter one, verse three He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He's praying for the Colossians, and he thanks God for them. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. He says, we are giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Christian, if you have nothing else to give thanks for, you can give thanks for that consistently. God, by your grace and your mercy, you have qualified me for a heavenly inheritance that I do not deserve on my own. And I'm thankful for that. Look at Colossians chapter two, verse seven. He says, be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Not just a little bit of thanksgiving, but a lot of thanksgiving. Look what he says in chapter three. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him, that is through Jesus. Chapter four, verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Here's the third thing Paul says, we should pray for opportunities to share the gospel. This is where we really get to the heart of what he's talking about here when we talk about gospel prayer, 
opportunities to share the gospel. How do we live amongst non-Christian people? They don't share our faith, our values, our vocabulary. How do we live among them? One of the things we do is we pray for what Paul calls open doors. Did you notice that phrase? Verse three, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. An open door. You'll find that phrase in the book of Acts. You find it in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You find it in the book of Revelation. An open door, a door that God opens is an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul is asking this church to pray for him that God would open a door that he might be able to share the gospel. He says, I want to declare the mystery of Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ that's now been fully revealed. Verse four, I want to make it clear, which is the way you ought to speak when you're speaking about Jesus. You ought to speak with clarity so that people can understand the good news about Jesus. He's asking them to pray for an open door, an opportunity to share the gospel. That verse that phrase, open door, it reminds me of one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. Acts chapter four. Jesus has died, been buried, been raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost, filled Peter and the apostles. They've preached the gospel. The church has been born. It's been birthed by the work of God's spirit and the hearts of men and women. And the church is now about the business of making disciples in Jerusalem. Peter and John get arrested. They get arrested by the very same men who had Jesus put to death. And these Jewish authorities call Peter and John in, and they look them in the eye, and they say, stop talking about Jesus. You know what we did to him. We'll do the same thing to you. Stop talking about Jesus. They go through a legal process, a legal dance. Peter and John are released. They go immediately to meet with the church to pray. They were devoted to prayer. And as Luke tells the story, as Peter and John meet with the church and they say, well, this is what they told us. They told us to stop talking about Jesus or else. As Luke tells the story and the church begins to pray, not one person prays that Peter and John would be kept safe. It's not what they prayed about. It's what I would have prayed about. God, they said they were gonna throw me in jail. God, they threatened to kill me. They threatened to hurt my family. This is what they prayed about. Acts chapter four, verse 29 They said, now, Lord, we've talked about that word in the book of Colossians, Lord, the sovereign one, the supreme one, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They did not pray that God would keep them safe. They just prayed that God would help them do what he had already commanded them to do. You told us to tell people about Jesus. It's getting tough, so we're gonna need your help. Give us boldness to do the one thing that you've sent us out into the world to do. They're praying for open doors and for the courage 
to walk through those open doors to share the gospel. They are not praying that God would change their circumstance. They're praying that God would change them. They're afraid, and they want God to make them bold. That brings us to one more thing I want you to see. Prayer doesn't always change our circumstances. It doesn't always change our circumstances. Verse three, Paul says, I want to have an open door for the word. I want to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. He's in prison for telling people about Jesus. He says if you cheat and go down to the end of the book, verse 18, he's literally in chains. He's shackled. And as he asked the church to pray for him, he does not want them to pray that he would be acquitted or released. Although I'm sure he wanted both of those things. What he asked them to pray is that God would give him an open door to do the one thing he'd been sent to do is to tell people about Jesus. Prayer in your life, when you have a circumstance that you don't like, I think you are more with, than within your rights. You are fully within your rights. You're more than welcome as a believer to go before God's throne and ask him to change your circumstance. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think we need to remember that prayer is not first and foremost about God changing circumstances. It's about God changing us, even in the midst of circumstances that we don't like. So that's the first thing Christian people are gonna be committed to, devoted to, prayer. Here's the second, witness. Prayer is talking to God about people. That's gospel prayer. Gospel witness is talking to people about God. And the first thing that we would see is this. Witnessing to unbelievers requires wisdom. Look at verse five. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That word walk is a biblical word. It goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible. It describes the totality of your life. How you live your life day in and day out. It describes the true, real you. Your walk. Paul says, I want you to walk. I want your life to be marked by wisdom, especially toward outsiders. He's not trying to use a hateful term. He's just saying there are those of us who are inside the kingdom of Jesus and those who are outside it. There are people who are still in the domain of darkness. And as you interact with those people, Paul says, I want you to walk, I want you to live with wisdom, especially toward those who don't share your faith and your values and your beliefs and your convictions and your morals and even your vocabulary. Walk with wisdom towards those people. In my life, I've known a few people, Christians, who when they were around non-Christians, they just constantly bludgeoned them with preaching. I mean, Every breath in the conversation was taken up by talking to them about Jesus, talking to them about the Bible, talking to them about God. At times it became a bit abrasive. I haven't been around many people like that. Most of the Christian people I've been around tend to be silent about the gospel when God gives us an open, an open door, an opportunity to talk to someone else. Most of us don't tend to say too much, although some do. Most of us tend to say too little. I think what Paul's calling us to in this passage is to have wisdom, wisdom. Can we just be honest? Talking to people about God is not always easy. 
It's easy in the abstract. Like I can give you four or five little things to memorize and say, well, you tell them this and you tell them this and you tell them this. But then you get into a conversation with a real person and maybe you have a relationship in history with them or maybe you don't and sometimes those four or five little points just don't flow naturally in conversation. Sometimes it's not just like reciting a vacuum sales pitch where you just sort of go through the thing. You need wisdom. You need wisdom to know what to say. You need wisdom to know how to say it. You need wisdom to know when to say it. You need wisdom to know when not to say something. You know, the Bible in the Old Testament and the New, in Proverbs and James, twice says, if you lack wisdom, you ought to ask God. Because he has it. And he really likes to give it to people. You should just ask him and say, God, I'm not a very wise person. I don't really know how to talk to people about you. So I'm going to need help in this. You should ask God for it. You should seek wisdom in reading his word. And you should be confident that he gives wisdom to those who seek it. It's wisdom as we relate to outsiders. Secondly, understand that we have limited opportunities to share the gospel. I think this is the end of verse five where he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. He also says, make the best use of the time. Some of your translations say, redeeming the time or buying back the time make the most of every opportunity life is short you remember what we just read in Psalm 103 he knows that we are dust our lives are like a mist like a vapor the psalmist David says in Psalm 103 our lives are like a flower that blooms today And then the wind blows like it blew yesterday and the day before, and it's dead. It's that quick. We all know that in the abstract. We'd like to pretend it's not true of us. I spoke with a family just this last week, not one of our church families, but a family here in town. They had a loved one about three weeks ago diagnosed with cancer, completely out of the blue. They said, you have six months to live, he died a week later. You know stories like that. Life is a mist, it's a vapor, it's a sigh, it's a breath. We are like grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. There are some times where you don't need to talk to somebody about Jesus. For example, at a Dallas Mavericks game with 20,000 people in the arena and the guy behind you can barely stand up because he's so drunk, probably not the best time to turn around to preach a sermon to that man. You need wisdom to know, yeah, this is probably not the time or the place. But you and I can also use that as an excuse. And Paul's telling us, make the most of the time. Redeem the time. You think you have tomorrow and the next day and next month and next year and next holiday and next opportunity? You might, but you might not. Our opportunities are limited. Thirdly, our words should be gracious and salty. Now, I know that today we use the word salty to talk about Jake's buddy at the Mavericks game. That's how we use the word. We say, oh, his, his language was very colorful. It was very salty. That's not how Paul's using the word in this passage. He has the idea of be salt and be light. 
Things around you are decaying. You should be a preservative. You should be beneficial. And notice what he says. Verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Not just when you're talking to people about Jesus. Always let your speech be like that. In the things that you say, and I would add a little footnote for people in the 21st century, and in the things that you post on social media. Let all of your words be gracious and seasoned with salt. Always. James makes this point in James chapter three. He says, what a strange thing that we use our tongues to sing songs, to pray, to tell other people about Jesus, and then we turn around and we use the same tongue, the same thumbs, typing online, to say horrible things to and about people. It's like getting salt water out of a fresh water well. It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be that way. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Not harsh, not mean, not critical, not whining, not complaining, but let it always be gracious and seasoned with salt. That's part of your witness. Not just when you're talking directly to someone specifically about Jesus, but all of your speech, always gracious and seasoned with salt. Lastly, witnessing requires listening. It involves listening. It starts with listening. At the end of verse six, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How in the world will you and I know how to answer each person that God puts in our paths if we do all the talking? That's the idea of answering, is that you have listened to somebody and now you're responding to them. Too often in our eagerness to witness, we just rush right out and talk. But Paul's saying, wait a minute, first you probably ought to listen. Don't talk, so that you know how to give an answer to each, each person. It's not just Paul who says this, Peter says it. First Peter chapter three, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. It's a common theme in the New Testament. Honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt as you give this answer to those who ask. So prayer and witness. Now, very brief in closing. Most of the time at church when we talk about these two things, praying and witnessing, most of the time we go home that afternoon and we just think to ourselves, well, I'm a lousy person. I don't do either of those things enough. I don't pray enough. I'm not very good at that. I don't witness enough. I don't talk to people about Jesus enough. I don't talk to God about people enough. I don't talk to people about God enough. And we just sort of leave with this low-grade sense of, man, it's hard. I'm not very good at that. 
We just sort of feel guilty. We feel bad about it. Sometimes preachers, teachers, Sunday school teachers, we try to use guilt as a motivator to sort of kick you in the spiritual backside and say, come on, get with it. Pray more. Witness more. This is what you're supposed to do. My aim is really not, my intention is not, my hope is not that any of us go home feeling guilty. Maybe conviction that we need to work on these things in our lives, but not guilty and remorseful about how terrible we are. That's not a helpful thing at all. So as we end, I just want to help you connect the dominant theme of Colossians to what we're talking about when we pray and when we witness. Jesus is supreme. He's Lord over everything. That changes the way you pray and it changes the way you witness. When you and I pray, what we're basically doing is we are coming before God and we're saying, I'm incapable. I can't do this. I don't have the ability within me. But you are the supreme one in the cosmos. You are sufficient for everything that I need. And in prayer, we're not coming to God trying to twist his arm to do things our way. We're coming to God and we're saying, God, here's a thing that you've told me to do. I can't do it. I need your help. And I know that you can do what you've called me to do. You can empower me to do it. You're the supreme one. You're sufficient for this task. In witnessing, I'm not sending you out to argue with people. I'm not sending you out to debate people. God's not sending us out to get in spiritual, doctrinal, theological fights with people. But he is sending us out to talk to people about him and to say to them, hey, I know somebody that you ought to know. He's an important person. In fact, he's the most important person. His name is Jesus. He came to die so that we might live, that we might be moved out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom that he's established. I know him and I'd like you to know him. That's pretty simple. It's pretty basic. There may be opportunities to, to give answers to those who ask for questions, to give a defense of the faith for those who would like to hear it. But most basically what we're being sent out to do is to pray talk to God about other people, and it's to witness. It's to talk to other people about God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we love you, and we are thankful for all that you have done to make us yours, to bring us into your family through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and his resurrection. Lord, what a privilege that we can talk to you We can come to you with our burdens. We can cast our anxieties and our cares at your feet. And we can talk to you about other people, people in our lives who need to know Jesus. Lord, what a great privilege to leave this place where we talk to you and to go out into the world where you give us open doors to talk to other people about you and about your son, Jesus. Lord, we just stop this morning and acknowledge that we need your help and your strength and your presence and your grace in both of these tasks. Lord, we know that you are sufficient for what we're asking you to do in our lives. And so we ask with boldness and we ask with confidence. We ask that you would help us 
in prayer and in witness. Lord, our hope ultimately is not in our ability to do these things, but it's in you. And so this morning we just want to stop by acknowledging that our hope and our confidence in our life is found solely in you. Lord, be honored as we sing one last song together this morning. We do it for your glory and your honor, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.